0: Our time in God's perfect word this morning is going to be from 2nd Kings chapter 5. 2nd Kings 5, we continue in the excitement of the ministry of Elisha. And really, if you were to, to map out the ministry and the miracles of Elisha, you would find a very compelling case to be made that that this chapter is the high point and the very center of Elisha's miracles. And surprisingly, but not surprisingly, to those of us who live on this side of the cross in Pentecost, it deals with the healing of a Gentile. Something that we certainly can appreciate. So we'll be in 2 Kings chapter 5. And before we read that, let's pray together. Lord God, we are... A people who love you and who love your word. We love it not for words on a page, we love it for truth that speaks of you, the true God, and your Son who is Himself truth. So we pray that we might submit ourselves to it rather than subjecting it to our criticism, that it would be permitted and that it would indeed subject us to its criticism. We might see ourselves in its light, and that we might see your grace in all its glory. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. 2 Kings 5 Now Naaman was commander of the army of the king of Aram. He was a great man in the sight of his master, and highly regarded, because through him the Lord had given victory to Aram. He was a valiant soldier, but he had leprosy. Now bands from Aram had gone out and had taken captive a young girl from Israel, and she served Naaman's wife. She said to her mistress, If only my master would see the prophet who is in Samaria, he would cure him of his leprosy. Naaman went to his master and told him what the girl from Israel had said. By all means go, the king of Aram replied. I will send a letter to the king of Israel. So Naaman left, taking with him ten talents of silver, six thousand shekels of gold, and ten sets of clothing. The letter that he took to the king of Israel read, With this letter I am sending my servant Naaman to you, so that you may cure him of his leprosy. As soon as the king of Israel read the letter, he tore his robes and said, Am I God? Can I kill and bring back to life? Why does this fellow send me someone to be cured of his leprosy? See how he is trying to pick a quarrel with me? When Elisha, the man of God, heard that the king of Israel had torn his robes, he sent him this message. Why have you torn your robes? Have the man come to me and he will know that there is a prophet in Israel. So Naaman went with his horses and chariots and stopped at the door of Elisha's house. Elisha sent a messenger to say to him, Go wash yourself seven times in the Jordan, and your flesh will be restored and you will be cleansed. But Naaman went away angry and said, I thought that he would surely come out to me and stand and call on the name of the Lord his God. Wave his hand over the spot and cure me of my leprosy. Are not Abana and Pharpar the rivers of Damascus? better than any of the waters of Israel, couldn't I wash in them and be cleansed? So he turned and went off in a rage. Naaman's servants went to him and said, My father, if the prophet had told you to do some great thing, would you not have done it? How much more then when he tells you, wash and be cleansed? So he went down and dipped himself in the Jordan seven times, as the man of God had told him. And his flesh was restored. And became clean like that of a young boy. Then Naaman and all his attendants went back to the man of God. He stood before him and said, Now I know that there is no God in all the world except in Israel. Please accept now a gift from your servant. The prophet answered, As surely as the Lord lives, whom I serve, I will not accept a thing. And even though Naaman urged him, he refused. If you will not, said Naaman, please let me, your servant, be given as much earth as a pair of mules can carry. For your servant will never again make burnt offerings and sacrifices to any other god but the Lord. But may the Lord forgive your servant for this one thing. When my master enters the temple of Ramon to bow down, and he is leaning on my arm, and I bow there also, when I bow down in the temple of Ramon, may the Lord forgive your servant for this. Go in peace, Elisha said. After Naaman had traveled some distance, Gehazi, the servant of Elisha, the man of God, said to himself, My master was too easy on Naaman, this Aramaean, by not accepting from him what he brought. As surely as the Lord lives, I will run after him and get something from him. So Gehazi hurried after Naaman. When Naaman saw him running toward him, he got down from the chariot to meet him. Is everything all right? He asked. Everything is all right, Gehazi answered. My master sent me to say, Two young men from the company of the prophets have just sent have just come to me from the hill country of Ephraim. Please give them a talent of silver and two sets of clothing. By all means, take two talents, said Naaman. He urged Gehazi to accept them and then tied up the two talents of silver in two bags and two sets of clothing. He gave them to two of his servants and they carried them ahead of Gehazi. When Gehazi came to the hill, he took the things from the servants and put them away in the house. He sent the men away and they left. Then he went in and stood before his master, Elisha. Where have you been, Gehazi? Elisha asked. Your servant didn't go anywhere. Gehazi answered. But Elisha said to him, Was not my spirit with you when the man got down from his chariot to meet you? Is this the time to take money or to accept clothes, olive groves, vineyards, flocks, herds, or men servants and maidservants? Naaman's leprosy will cling to you and to your descendants forever. Then Gehazi went from Elisha's presence And he was leprous, as white as snow. The proverb says, pride goes before destruction in a haughty spirit before a fall. It is better to be of a lowly spirit with the poor than to divide the spoil with the proud. And we see that truth from God's Word on the big screen, so to speak, of 2 Kings 5. The very first person that we encounter in 2 Kings 5 is Naaman. And Naaman is proud. He is successful. He is wealthy. He has prestige. His king loves him. He is, in many ways, everything a man could have hoped to be. And Naaman has a servant girl, and she's an Israelite, an Israelite captive. We might say that she's the opposite, that she's the opposite of Naaman. He was everything a man could have hoped to be. She's exactly what a young girl hopes not to become. He's wealthy and powerful and prestigious. She's captive and poor in a humble position. She's unnamed in the text. She's not with her family and she has no hope of going home to her family. What a contrast. Naaman the proud man of high position. The unnamed servant girl in the most lowly of positions. But Naaman lacks one thing, at least one thing that he's aware of lacking. He's a leper. He's not healthy. And I've noticed among among people, among men who seem to have everything going for them, almost all of them have one thing that they lack, that they would give up a lot of the things they have in order to be rid of. And so for Naaman, that one thing is that he is a leper. He has a a chronic skin disorder, and that he is a leper is no secret. His poor servant girl knows he's a leper, and the king knows he's a leper. And there's no hope of being cured, except that his servant girl has an idea, and she brings the idea to Naaman. She says, if only my master would see the prophet who is in Samaria, he would cure him of his leprosy. Now talk about loving your enemy, right? Naaman is, by all accounts, her enemy. He's a foreigner. He's... He's a ruler of the army of the nation which has kidnapped her, taken her away from her family, probably destroyed her home, and who knows what they actually did to her family. And she is a servant in his home who isn't even worthy of having her name mentioned. She can't even go talk to Naaman himself. She has to talk to him through his wife. And yet, she who has every reason in the world to bite her tongue Says to him through his wife, There's a prophet in Israel. And that prophet can raise the dead. I'm sure that he can heal a leper as well. And so she points Naaman off to the prophet, the prophet, of course, being Elisha. And Naaman goes. He goes and asks the king. He says, King, this, this servant girl of mine says that there might be hope in Israel. And the king says, by all means, go. Now notice Naaman's desperation. He's willing to make a long journey into what is typically enemy territory. Now there's peace between Aram or or Syria. The two are synonymous. There's peace between Aram or Syria and Israel at this time, but it's a, a tense peace. And you can tell that there's tension because of how the Israelite king responds when when Naaman comes to him, but he's willing to go into into enemy territory, so to speak, to a prophet of a foreign god in this desperate attempt to be healed from his leprosy. And then, of course, off he goes. He goes with great wealth. The king loves him and sends him off with this sort of a, a bribe and sends him off to the king of Israel. The king of Israel, he wants this king to instruct his prophet that his prophet should heal his man and he's willing to pay him handsomely for it. And it's well-intentioned, isn't it? The king really wants the healing of Naaman. Naaman really seeks healing. But the king of Israel doesn't take it as though it's well-intentioned. He, he sees this, this Naaman, this commander of a foreign army, come and he thinks this must be a trap. Look what he's doing. He's trying to bait me into war. He sends me his, his top guy. He says heal him of his leprosy. He knows I can't heal someone of leprosy. He's just looking for an excuse to go to war with me. And so he tears his robes in this, in this sign of distress, in the sign of, of grief. And Elisha hears of it and is going to do something about it. But notice... Notice two interesting things here. The first thing to notice here is that the king of Syria expects that the prophet in Israel works for the king. That's how false prophets worked. They sought money and power and prestige and security. And how better to get that than to be buddy-buddy with the king? And so false prophets worked for kings. But Elisha doesn't work for the king Elisha works for the king he's willing to speak the truth to power so to speak and so the foreign king misjudges the situation in Israel but notice the second thing that the king of Israel is orthodox in his mouth only God can kill and raise from the dead that's true isn't it but he doesn't believe it if he had believed it, he wouldn't have torn his robes and sent, and sent the man away without being healed. If he believed it, he would have said, yes, there's a prophet here, is a prophet of the Lord, who has demonstrated that he can raise the dead. If he can do that, I'm sure that he would be willing to give your leprosy a look as well. He has faith in his mouth, but not in his heart. But Elisha has the true faith. But then notice as well who in the story is weak and who in the story is strong. Naaman, Naaman is weak. He's sick. The king of Israel is weak. He quakes in fear, faithlessness. But the unnamed captive slave girl in a foreign land, she is strong. Strong in confidence strong in love and strong in faith. So Naaman goes. This is when things begin to get interesting. Read with me again from verses 9 to 12. So Naaman went with his horses and chariots and stopped at the door of Elisha's house. Elisha sent a messenger to say to him, Go wash yourself seven times in the Jordan and your flesh will be restored and you will be cleansed. But Naaman went away angry and said, I thought that he would surely come out to me and stand and call the name of the Lord his God and wave his hand over the spot and cure me of my leprosy. Are not Abana and Pharpar, the rivers of Damascus, better than any of the waters of Israel? Couldn't I wash in them and be cleansed? So he turned and went off in a rage. You can almost hear Naaman, can't you? I am Naaman. I am a powerful man people care about me i have servants the king loves me i win vic- i win victories i have great wealth and this prophet of israel won't even come and talk to me himself he sends out his servant no i have servants i don't talk to servants and he wants me to humiliate myself He wants me to go into the dirty, nasty, mucky Jordan River, that excuse for a river in Israel, and dip myself in front of my servants seven times, humiliating myself in their eyes. He would make a fool out of me? I don't think so. And he goes off in a rage. The pride practically oozes out of the man's pores, doesn't it? He's got all kinds of pride. He... He comes wealthy thinking that he can bribe the prophet into healing him. He arrives with horses and chariots and with an entourage. And when the when the prophet doesn't come out to meet him personally and tells him to go do something so simple as dipping yourself in an inferior river, he refuses to do it. This is not the kind of healing which is worthy of a man of his position. And so off he goes, because Elisha fails to meet his expectation. But Naaman's servants are wiser than him and humbler than him, and so they prevail upon him in verses 13 and 14. Naaman's servants went to him and said, My father, if the prophet had told you to do some great thing, would you not have done it? How much more then when he tells you, wash and be cleansed? So he went down and dipped himself in the Jordan seven times as the man of God had told him. And his flesh was restored and became clean like that of a young boy. What can it hurt? What have you got to lose? We won't think any less of you if you go and dip yourself in. We've come all this way. At least give it a shot. So Naaman humbles himself to the point at least where he's willing to go and dip himself in the Jordan River those seven times according to the word of the prophet of the Lord. And he goes and he dips himself in the river those seven times and he comes out clean. But notice that the man who goes into the river is different than the man who comes out of the river. And we see that as we move into verses 15 to the first part of verse 19. Then Naaman and all his attendants went back to the man of God. He stood before him and said, Now I know that there is no God in all the world except in Israel. Please accept now a gift from your servant. The prophet answered, As surely as the Lord lives, whom I serve, I will not accept a thing. And even though Naaman urged him, he refused. If you will not, said Naaman, please let me, your servant, be given as much earth as a pair of mules can carry, For your servant will never again make burnt offerings or sacrifices to any other God but the Lord. But may the Lord forgive your servant for this one thing. When my master enters the temple of Ramon to bow down, and he is leaning on my arm, and I bow there also. When I bow down in the temple of Ramon, may the Lord forgive your servant for this. Go in peace, Elisha said. The man who goes into the river dies in the river. And a new man comes out of the river. Naaman goes in full of pride. He comes out in humility. He goes in an idolater. He comes out a child of the living God. He goes in sick inside and out. He comes out well inside and out. And he makes this profession. Now I know that there is no God in all the world except in Israel. He doesn't just say, now I know that there is a prophet in Israel. He doesn't say, now I know that there is a God in Israel. Now he says, I know that the only God is in Israel. He's not a polytheist. Now he's a monotheist. He believes in one God. And he believes that that one God is Israel's God. And as Psalm 96 says, that all the gods of the nations are idols. He takes the spirit of the words of Deuteronomy 32, 39 on his lips. There the Lord says, See now that I, even I, am He, and there is no God beside me. But do you notice something subtle here? When Naaman comes to Elisha, Elisha won't see him. Naaman comes to bribe him. And Elisha won't be bribed. Naaman comes expecting a a work of magic. He'll wave his hand and it will be free. And Elisha gives him no magic. And now, when Naaman goes and dips himself those seven times in the Jordan River, who does Naaman come out praising? Not Elisha. When Naaman comes out praising, he comes out praising Elisha's God. Elisha refused to give even one even one inch of space for thinking that somehow he was the one who gave the healing. Elisha insists that it is not he who heals, but it is his God who heals. And because of Elisha's humility, Naaman the idolater becomes Naaman the believer. And now notice the change in Naaman. Now Naaman wants to give to Elisha, not to, not to bribe him. Now Naaman wants to give to Elisha out of a, a generous heart, but Elisha's not having it. No, you can't pay me. And the idea is, why would you pay me? I didn't do anything. And Naaman insists, and Elisha insists. And then notice Naaman's response. If you won't take my money, then give me some Israelite dirt. This is the man who wouldn't go into the dirty river. And now he wants dirt. And why does he want dirt? Because he wants to worship Israel's God on Israel's God's promised land dirt. Because he knows that this dirt is special dirt because this is the dirt promised to Abraham and to Isaac and to Jacob. And he wants to worship Abraham's God on Abraham's dirt. And he will never worship Anywhere else. You know, when you, come, when you come to the true God, you come putting your sin to death. You have no choice. If you're going to come to the true God, you must put your sin to death. And here Naaman has put to death the sin of his nationalist ethnic bigotry, hasn't he? Now, he comes to Israel's God, even though it's not the God of his father's but he has this one thing to ask. Please forgive me because I have to go home and when I go home I will still be the servant of an idolater and he is not going to convert to Israel's God and when I go home I have to go into the temple of the false god the idol with him and he when he bends down he bends down on my arm and it may even appear as though I am bowing to the false god. Forgive me. You see, Naaman feels the tension between his patriotism and his holiness. And he knows that there is something that isn't going to feel right about it. And Elisha says to him, go in peace. You see, what Naaman asked was whether he needed to become An Israelite to worship Israel's God. But Elisha says, No, you can go back and you can be a Syrian and worship Israel's God. Do you see what Elisha does? Elisha allows a Gentile to stay a Gentile while worshiping the God of Israel. And isn't that exactly what the Apostle Paul would do in the letter to the Galatians? You can be a Gentile and worship the true God of Abraham. I want to keep Naaman in mind here. We're going to circle back to him, but for now we're going to go focus on Gehazi, who's a, a tragic character in the story. We'll go we'll pick up in verse 19 and we'll read through verse 24. After Naaman had traveled some distance, Gehazi, the servant of Elisha, the man of God, said to himself, My master was too easy on Naaman, this Aramaean, by not accepting from him what he brought. As surely as the Lord lives, I will run after him and get something from him. So Gehazi hurried after Naaman. When Naaman saw him running toward him, he got down from his chariot to meet him. Is everything all right, he asked. Everything is all right, Gehazi answered. My master sent me to say, two young men from the company of the prophets have just come to me from the hill country of Ephraim. Please give them a talent of silver and two sets of clothing. By all means, take two talents, said Naaman. He urged Gehazi to accept them and then tied up the two talents of silver in two bags with two sets of clothing. He gave them to two of his servants and they carried them ahead of Gehazi. When Gehazi came to the hill, he took the things from the servants and put them away in the house. He sent the man away, and they left. Elisha does not require Naaman to stop being an Aramean in order to worship his god. But Gehazi still despises Naaman because he is an Aramean. You can hear it dripping out of his voice, can't you? My master was too easy on Naaman, this Aramaean. Now draw out the contrast. The, the first person you have is that Israelite slave girl who tells her enemy that he can go and find healing in Israel's God. And then you have Elisha who, who gives peace to this foreigner. But then you have Gehazi who has just seen. He's just seen Elisha. Heal this foreigner. He's just heard Elisha tell this foreigner that he can go back home and worship Israel's God, even giving him this Israelite dirt. But he still hates him because he's a foreigner. Gehazi has missed the lesson which should have been so obvious. And so he decides he's going to go plunder this Naaman for all that he's worth. And so you see what he does he lies to Naaman. He receives what he desires. He receives actually more than he desires. Naaman gives him two talents. He had only asked for one. So eager is Naaman to give out of gratitude. Note the contrast here. The servant girl is humble. Unconverted Naaman is proud. Converted Naaman is generous. And Gehazi is full of greed. And now his sin is about to be exposed. Well, Read the final verses there in verse 25. Then he went in and stood before his master, Elisha. Where have you been, Gehazi? Elisha asked. Can't you feel his face starting to get hot, right? You ever have that feeling when you're caught and your face starts to get hot? You Imagine that's where he began to feel here. Your servant didn't go anywhere, Gehazi answered. But Elisha said to him, was not my spirit with you? when the man got down from his chariot to meet you. Is this the time to take money or to accept clothes, olive groves, vineyards, flocks, herds, or men servants or maid servants? Naaman's leprosy will cling to you and to your descendants forever. And Gehazi went from Elisha's presence and he was leprous, as white as snow. Gehazi coveted Naaman's money lied about Elisha, lied to Naaman, lied to Elisha, stole Naaman's goods which didn't belong to him, and now the punishment is that he's not going to have Naaman's silver, he's going to have Naaman's leprosy. And on top of that, remember that Elisha had been Elijah's servant before Elisha had become the great prophet. Gehazi might have even imagined himself as the next great prophet. Now he won't even get to be with the prophet, banished from the man of God's presence, seemingly with it banished from God's presence. Within this one chapter, there really are two chapters or two stories. But the two stories, whether it be the healing of Naaman or whether it be Gehazi's greed, they have, they have one core message. And the core message is that God hates pride. Pride dishonors God. God loves humility. And humility honors God. So you see in that first chapter, you see, the, you see the humility of that Israelite captive servant girl. She serves. She loves. She's full of hope and faith, even though everything inside of her... Just imagine the trauma, right? Right? She has suffered emotional trauma, we would say today. She's been ripped away from her home and her family, brought into a land of idolatry. If anyone has a right to be bitter and angry, it's her. But she is full of those chief virtues, faith and hope and love. And we see the the foolishness of Naaman's pride. Pride that that would drive him away from the healing that he desires. If the prophet had told him to go win some great battle or go climb some high mountain, he would have done it because it was worthy of him. But when the prophet tells him to do something that anybody can do, no, that's not good enough for me. But isn't that just the point? God doesn't care about what you think is good enough for you. God didn't care about his money. God didn't care about his prestige or his power or his victories. God had given him those victories. God didn't care about Naaman as he's viewed in the eyes of everybody else, even in his own eyes. God cared about Naaman, the man, the sin-sick leper. And it wasn't until Naaman was willing to see himself with the same humility that God saw him that he was going to be healed. And when he did humble himself, then he was healed. As another proverb said, God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Jesus was well aware of the story of Naaman. In fact, it almost got him killed. If it had not been for the Lord's grace in sustaining him until the cross, he probably would have been killed by this mob. He, he quotes this story of Naaman in Luke chapter 4. He's beginning to draw the ire, so to speak, of his hometown crowd. They don't appreciate this prophet very much, and so he rebukes them before leaving, and we see this in Luke 4. And Jesus said, Truly I say to you, no prophet is acceptable in his hometown, but in truth I tell you there were many widows in Israel in the days of Elijah, when the heavens were shut up for three years and six months, and a great famine came over all the land. And Elijah was sent to none of them, but only to Zarephath passing through their midst, He went away. They were ready to kill Jesus. Why? Because He challenged their pride. See, they viewed themselves as having a right to God. That God, They, were, they had a, a right to God's favor because they were Israelites. They were Jews and He was the God of the Jews. They viewed God as belonging to them rather than the other way around. And Jesus offended them by challenging their pride and lifting up instead God's grace so much that they desired to kill him. Those who reject grace will always reject Jesus. And the same point is made in the second part of the story. What was Gehazi's greatest sin? That he coveted? That he stole? That he lied about Elisha? That he lied to Naaman? That he lied to Elisha? No, Naaman's greatest sin was that he lied about the gospel. God had given Naaman healing for free. God had given Naaman the healing because of nothing in him. He wouldn't let the healing be bought or earned. He wouldn't let it be given because of something about Naaman. God healed Naaman by grace. Even we might say God healed Naaman by grace alone. But now Gehazi makes God look like a for-profit God. He makes him look like a needy God, like a works-based saving God. Gehazi makes God look less beautiful and glorious than He is. That's not something restricted only to Gehazi, though, is it? But we can, and there are people who make God look less glorious than He is in our own day. Consider a recent example which which hits close to home. Right, James McDonald of, of moody radio fame, the one who preaches grace, what does he do? He becomes known nationwide for scandals of lewdness and anger and mistreatment of people and extravagant expenditures and greed, all the while making a mockery of the gospel and the God that he preached to so many. He made God look ugly when it was his calling to make him look glorious or the Mormons, the church of Jesus Christ. But no, not the church of Jesus Christ. The church of a false Jesus. The church of a Jesus who only helps good people, not people like Naaman. They say this, the atonement of Jesus Christ does not answer for our individual personal sins which are forgiven only on the condition of repentance, baptism, and a good life. Does the Mormon God save Naaman? I don't think so. Naaman is not a good man. He does not have a good life. He's an idolater who has a slave girl who was kidnapped from her home. He's proud. He's arrogant. He's boastful. He's everything a person isn't supposed to be. But God saves him by grace. The Mormon God could never have saved Naaman because the Mormon God doesn't exist. Roman Catholics make Jesus out to be a stingy half-savior. They say this in the Council of Trent, if anyone says that by faith alone the impious, that is the unholy, is justified, that is made right with God, in such a way as to mean that nothing else is required to cooperate in order to obtain the grace of justification. And that it is not in any way necessary that he be prepared and disposed by the movement of his own will. Let him be anathema, that is, eternally condemned, that is, let him go to hell. The Catholic, the Catholic Christ is not the Christ who heals Naaman. Nothing was required of Naaman. Nothing was required of him. No mountain to climb. No no goodwill. Only simple submission in humility the god of rome is not the god who heals name god is not greedy god is not needy god does not help those who help themselves god gives grace god gives grace freely God gives grace freely to whomever He wants for whatever reason He wants to give it. God helps not those who help themselves. God helps the humble and the one who sees himself as nothing except one who has a need for everything to be given Him from God. Can you marvel at the servant girl? Just marvel at her, full of faith and love for her enemy. Here we are in 21st century America, and if you're anything like me, you're looking at this unnamed servant girl, and you're thinking to yourself, I hope that I have faith like her. Can you marvel at the work which is done the work which is done in Naaman, the proud enemy of God and his people, becomes child of God and one of his people. Then look at Gehazi, the one who had every reason to know better, who instead of appreciating the grace of God, smears it in the eyes of the one who had just received it. Where is your hope? Is your hope in Gehazi's God? In the Mormon God who helps the good? Is it in the liberal God who speaks half-truths which amount to whole lies? Is it in the church or the God of Rome who needs you to do your part? Or is your hope in the servant girl's God, in Naaman's God, in Elisha's God, in the God of grace, or is your hope in Jesus? Because Jesus is not Gehazi's God, and he's not the Mormon God, and he's not the God of Rome, he's not the God who helps those who help themselves. Jesus is Naaman's God. He's the God who saves by grace. He's the God who saves by grace alone. We started with the proverb, so it would make sense to end with the proverb. Pride goes before destruction. Gehazi learned that the hard way. In a haughty spirit before a fall. It is better to be of a lowly spirit with the poor than to divide the spoil With the proud wouldn't you rather be with the servant girl and her god than with gehazi and his leprous silver but we ought to take a lesson from gehazi to appreciate god's grace not to smear it to take a lesson from naaman and the unnamed servant girl who revered God's grace and made him look glorious as he truly is. Let's pray. Lord, we have no desire to smear your grace, to make you look ugly before the watching world. But if we're honest, perhaps we see a little bit of Gehazi in us. We pray that you would kill it. Kill it mercilessly. Drag the Gehazi out of our hearts and put it to death that we might take the faith, the hope, and the love of this unnamed righteous daughter of yours. and the incredible gratitude of Naaman, this fellow Gentile saved by grace, and put them on like robes of righteousness in Christ. God, give us the blessing, which comes with the realization that you and you alone save. That you save by the power of the crucified one. Gave his life as a ransom for sinners. Sinners like us. We pray in that one's name. Amen.